Quick Little Shot by Tom Weller and be read by David Milden. Tom Weller lives in Greencastle, Indiana and teaches at Indiana State University. His fiction has appeared most recently Epiphany, Litro, Paper Darts and Bot Dead City and is forthcoming in Phantom Drift. David Milden is an actor and playwright and was a founding member of Lies League. His stories, Worms Feast and Red, were performed by Lies League and appeared in Arachne Press anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies. His play, The Flood, will be pro- uh, produced at Hope Theatre Islington this summer. David! Quick Little Shot by Tom Weller. Chance's high-pitched screams filled the house. They spread like ripples, starting in the kitchen and expanding out until they reached every corner of the house. His four-year-old lungs as powerful as an air raid siren. Peggy's sounds came to me caught up in the waves of Chance's screams. Her shoes slapped the kitchen floor. She gasped, What happened? Let Mommy look at it. When I reached the kitchen, the screaming had stopped. Chance sat slumped in a ladder-back chair. Peggy knelt in front of him and dabbed his forearm with a wet rag. As she spoke to Chance, her words blurred into each other, forming a kind of cooing, a sound like a dove makes. What's going on here? I asked. Chance panted his lower lip extending and retracting, extending and retracting. I looked toward Peggy, her eyes still fixed on Chance's forearm. All I could see of her was the back and top of her blonde bob. Are you okay, Chance? I asked. I grasped the top of his head and tipped it back to get a look at his face. I liked the way his buzz cut fell against my hand. The tingle of the bristles against my palm reminded me of my boyhood summers of Vito's barber shop and graying old Vito, who always smelt of hair tonic and pipe tobacco, of my father nudging me toward Vito's chair and telling me, take it all off, down to the scalp. Chance's bristles against my hand reminded me of climbing out of the barber chair, the exhilaration of rubbing my head and discovering that it had become a new thing. Sam bit me, Chance said. With his free hand, he removed his wire-rimmed glasses and set them on the table. He raised his arm slowly out of Peggy's hands, moving as if he had been shot in the shoulder. He nodded toward his forearm. I leant over him and followed his eyes toward a pink spot. I let out a low whistle. Yep, you got bit all right. I hate Sam, said Chance. He dropped his arms in Peggy's waiting hands. Tears ran down his cheeks, tumbled through space, shattered against the linoleum floor. Sam. I hated that kid, too. Three-year-old Sam, the only other kid in the neighborhood, lived next door and often came over to play with Chance. Their favorite game? Canadians. (laughs) I've heard stories about Joseph Conrad as a boy lying on the floor of his home, studying the incomplete maps of Africa, and 
conjuring magical visions of the mysterious continent. Canada was that kind of place for chance. Peggy's sister lived in Toronto. Canada was the only foreign country that Chance knew of, and he had decided Canada was a distant, exotic land filled with more wonder than a Mother Goose story collection. He loved all things Canadian. Games of Canadians always started with Chance running in big circles, Sam chasing after him, their kegs thrumming against the grass of the backyard, squeals escaping from their lips. Why they were running changed with each new game. Sometimes Chance cautioned Sam to stay alert as they raced through the snake-filled jungles of Canada. <laughs> Other times Chance led Sam in a battle, charging at foreign devils, threatening the King of Canada. <laughs> but every time they played, eventually, Sam would decide that Chance was a hungry jungle beast or a spy for the invaders and... Sam would jump on Chance, send him tumbling to the ground, his soft flesh smacking against the earth, a sound like someone punching dough. After some rolling around, Sam always ended up on top of Chance. Sam with his knees pinning Chance's shoulders to the ground. Sam with his arms raised. Sam a conquering Canadian. Chance squirming impotently face twisted like a man strapped to a torture rack. These are my staple images of my son playing in our backyard. But I'd always try to stay out of it. Try to look busy, picking up sticks in the yard while watching the struggle out of the corner of my eye and silently rooting for chance to turn the tide. But that never happened. Every game of Canadians ended this way. Chance would squirm and squirm, the muscles in his neck and shoulders straining, his feet churning the air while Sam laughed. Then Chance's eyes would grow large and watery, and his face would turn pink, and he would start to sob, his lips would tremble, and big tears would get caught in his glasses, and I would hear Peggy yell from the back deck, Ed, do something! And I jog over to the pile of little boys and grab Sam by the back of his overalls, pluck him into the air, and hold him there with one hand, awkwardly, out the way from my body, like a, a man inspecting a fish he wasn't proud to have caught. And while Sam twisted slowly in the air, he would laugh and laugh and laugh. And then I'd always look down and see Chance lying in the grass, gasping for breath, choking back sobs. He always looked as if he had um, just barely escaped drowning, as if he had just washed up in the backyard thanks to some fortuitous ocean current. Standing next to Chance in our kitchen, watching Peggy fuss over him, I said, Let me see your arm. Slowly. Chance raised his arm toward my face and turned his head toward me. I held his forearm from underneath and stroked the pink spot with my thumb. I felt slight indentations in Chance's smooth skin. I asked the question even though I already knew what his answer would be. That doesn't really hurt now, does it? Chance didn't say anything at first. 
He looked away from me and toward the wall. He looked back towards me, winced, and nodded his head up and down, just as I knew he would. I didn't plan to stay up late to watch Sports Center after Peggy had already gone off to bed. I just did. I didn't plan to march towards Chance's room when I finally clicked off the TV, but I did. The rest? Pure instinct. Chance's door stood open as it always did. Peggy wanted to hear every cough or tumble from bed. Stuck my head in. The light from the hallway illuminated the space. Red and blue plastic bins holding Chance's toys lined the walls. His bed, a small red-framed thing with guardrails, stood to my right, centered against one wall. I sat down on the foot of the bed. The springs creaked underneath me. Chance lay rolled into a ball on his side, his knees nearly touching his chin. He took slow, shallow breaths, made a whistling sound each time he exhaled. He had a puzzled smile on his face. I wished I could walk into his dreams. I grabbed Chance and gave his ankle a shake. He rolled into a tighter ball and put his hands up around his head. I shook his leg again and Chance rolled onto his back. He straightened out his legs and dropped his hands to his sides. He slowly lifted his head and looked towards me. His, uh, his eyelids hung at half-mast. Don't be scared, Chance, I said. It's just me, Daddy. Chance nodded his head twice, dropped it back down on the mattress, and curled back up into a ball. I gave Chance's leg a more vigorous shake. Wake up, Chance. I want to talk to you for a second. I've got an important question for you. Chance stretched out and raised his head. That's it. I said, great, now sit up. Chance groaned and squirmed until he sat cross-legged in the middle of the mattress and swayed like a drunk, struggling to clear his head. The world can be a little scary, can it, Chance? Chance looked at me, wobbled, and nodded yes. His movements slow and exaggerated, but... Fathers should always love their sons, and sons should always love their fathers, right? Chance nodded again, still half asleep. This is important now, Chance. I, I want you to really listen to this. I grabbed Chance by the shoulder, felt the bones slight and knobbly against my hand. I tried to look him dead in the eye, his head bobbed like it was on a spring. I want you to punch me, Chance. Chance's eyelids rose. Give me a shot. Right here. I pointed to my shoulder. Daddy? That's right. Give me a shot right here. That's how the game starts. Chance shrugged his shoulders and made a fist. Pulled it back past his ear, and he brought it forward. His fist moved sluggishly, looked as if it was traveling through water. It bounced off my shoulder and landed back in his lap, Chance gave it. 
okay, I said. But you're right, that, that was great. A good solid punch, but you see what I did? Nothing. Did you see that? That's how you take a shot. Get it? Chance nodded his head as he clenched and unclenched his fist in his lap. Now, it's my turn, I said. Chance's back stiffened. He tilted his head, looked at me as if I spoke a foreign language. I'm just going to give you a little shot right in the shoulder. I reached out and pointed at my target as I spoke. Chance wiggled away from me as if I was coming at him with a needle. Hey, hey, that's not how we play the game, I said. Patty, just relax. I don't want to play anymore. Chance raised his hands and covered his eyes. Come on now, you don't want to be a quitter, do you? I'm going to give you a little punch, and if you play it cool like nothing happened, if you can take the shot, I'll give you a quarter. A quarter? Chance drops his hands down to his lap. I raised my right hand and made a fist. I, I lined up my target. My fist looked huge next to Chance, nearly twice as big as his shoulder. I don't want to play, Chance said. He pulled his arms up around his head like a boxer on the ropes, just hoping to make it to the end of the round. I'll make sure it's a Canadian quarter, I said. Canadian? Chance dropped his hands down to his sides. I pulled my fist back toward my chest. Chance turned his shoulder to me and looked toward the opposite wall. Here it comes, Chance. Just a quick little shot. I didn't hit him hard. Just hard enough that he would feel it. My knuckles against his shoulder. We both felt it. Felt it in our bones. Thank you, David. Our second born story, The Black Sheep of the Family, will be I'm Your Son by Joshua Osco. We read by Eileen Fogg. Joshua was born in Birmingham, England. His work has been published in Prol, the Canary Press, Burton Snake, and Glassfire magazines. He's also the editor of The Red Line, a short story easy. He loves paella and bettini. Bettina? Bettina. He dislikes injustice and slippers. Eileen has been in the business since 1972. Her stage career has spanned everything from Brecht to Panto, many major Irish companies and two ongoing one-woman shows. Hollywood has also called, if infrequently, and she was a BBC sitcom stalwart in Brecht for many years. Currently involved in an exciting international theatre initiative, Truth in Translation, and can also be seen being mean in the recent film short, Are You Out? Hi!
Daniel's son, Joshua Oster. Tony was here on Monday. I know, because I mark off his visits on the calendar. I don't know if I've had the earrings since Monday. I can't remember. I'm having another look around the bedroom and I can smell something burning. I walk out onto the landing. The smell is stronger there. I check the spare room and the bathroom just in case before heading down the stairs. I hold onto the banister taking one step at a time. Right foot first before moving the left foot down onto the same step. There are 12 steps from upstairs to downstairs. By the time I get to the bottom, the smell is thick and heavy. I go into the kitchen and switch off the grill. Horrible, black smoke is pouring out of the grill tray into the room, but it hasn't set up the smoke alarm. The battery must be flat. Though I didn't hear the people beeping sound like normal. I'll mention to Tony to have a look the next time he's here. He's not as handy as his father, bless him. But he climb up he can climb up on a chair. I open the back door into the garden, right next to the cooker and leave it open. It's raining outside and there's such a chill it goes straight to my bones, but the smoke goes out that way and the air starts to clear. I was looking for something. My pearl earrings. I look again, starting at the top of the house and working my way down. I've lost things before, and I don't want to talk to Tony until I'm sure. It's not something I want to be right about. But then, it's not something I want to be wrong about either. If I'm going to speak to him. If his father were here, things would be different. Graham was always the calm one. Back up the stairs again. I swear, it's like climbing the north face of the Eiger getting upstairs these days. I should have checked the calendar when I was down in the kitchen, just to make sure that it was Monday that Tony came. I think it was. I remember him standing by the bureau in the living room, giving me one of his shifty smiles. <laughs> He was always a mistress. When he was less than eight weeks old, he caught the meningitis, and we had one of those, had him in one of those glass incubators. Graham, God bless him, was beside himself. Tony was so small, and none of the other stuff had happened yet. He was just a tiny red thing, and he was in such misery, crying and crying. 
You don't know yourself properly until something like that happens. It's old-fashioned nowadays. But we prayed, me and his father. We were down on our knees praying together and we said that no matter what, if the good Lord let us keep him, we'd never let Tony down. We'd bring him up in a Christian way and he would never want for anything. I don't know if we failed or if it's just that him up there decided to test us. My memory isn't what it was, so I write on the bedside pad all the places the earrings could be. I tick them off as I go around the house, so I know that I've looked there. My memory started to slide a while back, and it's a worry. You don't feel it, it just happens. And when you try to recall things, it's like the traces of them has been washed out. They're just a white patch. That's why I make lists. I start with the bedside tables, jewellery box, every drawer in the bedroom. I get down to look under the bed, which is like fireworks going off in my knees, but I can't see anything down there. It takes a while to get back up, so I have a little sit down on the edge of the bed, check the list, and have a look around to see if there's somewhere I've missed. I hope so. I don't know if Tony caused his father's stroke. Graham said not, and Graham should know. I don't know why these things happen to people. I looked after my husband as best I could. And that was a different proposition back then. He called me his Florence Nightingale. Though we had a real nurse who came in twice a week. Different nurses they were. On rotation. But you got to know most of them. I can't remember, can't remember what the lazy one was called, but we like Rosemary. I wish she came now. I could use some nursing, or just a chat. Someone to shine a light on things. I check the spare bedroom and bathroom again and do the list. There's nothing. I'm starting to feel sick in my belly. If I can't find them downstairs, then I'll have to ask Tony. I don't want to ask Tony. Have you seen them? I'll ask him, and he'll know what I mean. I could stay quiet. Some would say I should stay quiet, but that's not me. Not yet. Tony is the only visitor I've had in three weeks, on Monday. I know, because I mark off his visits on the calendar. Graham used to joke that if Tony was a horse, he'd be a long shot. Graham was big for the horses. But he, he only bet little amounts. 
never more than you can afford to lose, he used to say. I don't need a man to be perfect. But he knew where he wasn't, and that was good enough for me. Tony wasn't really in the race, so you weren't betting on him to win so much as to see him make it to the finish line. But he came to visit on Monday. He was standing right there by the bureau. He went to the shops for me and picked up my pension. And then he came and chatted for a bit. That was Monday. And he was standing there by the bureau. I climbed back down the stairs. With the crawling and the ups and downs, my legs are hurting. So I sit on the first step and slide my way down, using the banister railings to stop my bum bumping too hard. The list comes with me and the pen, step by step, until they're low enough to grab from the hall. When I'm down, I reach through the railings to get them, then head into the living room. After the living room is the kitchen. Half an hour later, and I know it's no good. I'm going to need to call Tony. Hello, Mummy says. What's up? I just wanted to see how you were, I tell him. My heart is beating hard. I can taste metal in my mouth. Yeah, I'm good, he says. You sound sober. It's 11 in the morning. I can hear street noises round him. You? Yeah, I'm well, I say. Just wondering if I'm going to see you this week. See me again. He sounds surprised. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm a bit busy at the moment. I'll try. You're working, I ask him. He's busy, he says. It's worth asking. I'm still looking, he says. But I've got a couple of interviews and stuff. What for, I say? The interviews? Uh, so I'll try and come round, he says. But probably after the weekend now. I'll come and do the shopping for you again. Pick up your pension. There's a pause. And I steal myself. He's about to finish the call, so I say it. I don't suppose you've seen my earrings, have you? I ask. I've been looking for them and I wondered... No, he says warily. I haven't seen them. The pearl ones, I say? The ones your father bought me when we went to Italy. We should know where they came from. Oh, for fuck's sake, Mum, he says. Are you really asking this? Are you really asking your son if he's stolen from you? Your son? I just wondered. I just wondered, he repeats scornfully. I just wondered. I just wondered. I'm your son, Mum. What sort of a mother asks her son if he's stolen from her? This is it, I realise. This is familiar. He can't even stand on his own name. He needs to use the fact that he's my son to hide behind. 
He is my son, my only son. But this is how it always is. The anger, the counterattacks and the evasions that are even worse than lies. The pain of it, the shame of it. What kind of mother? The accusation stings, but only because I hear it from somewhere else. From him up there, asking me why I didn't keep my promise to raise my son right. But then, I'm so lonely, so weak now. I need Tony. I don't have anyone else. The drugs, the lies, the stealing, the time he hit his father. You reap what you sow, I think to myself. Got nothing to say, he says to me. I just wonder what I say again. I'll have another look. You do that. I've not got your earrings. There's a pause. Look, I'm off, he says, satisfied with himself. I've got to see someone. Okay, I say. My voice trembling. I'm sorry, I just thought maybe... A proper mother doesn't think that about her son, he tells me, and hangs up. But I do. He went to prison for stealing. He stole from us time and time again until his father confronted him and there was the fight. I sit there for a while. I'm not sure how long. Feeling numb. Then I cry for a bit, just until it feels better and I'm numb again. Tired and numb and empty. I go into the kitchen to check the calendar. Tony was here on Monday. I wonder if the grill is cold enough. The smoke and most of the smell have gone out through the open door now, so I shut it. I pull out the grill tray and look at the black charred squares of bread sitting on it. I should have used the toaster. But it never gets things right. Anyway, in the bin with you two, I take them over to the pedal bin, lift the lid with a slippered foot. I'm about to drop in the slices when I see at the bottom of the fresh bin bag two pearl earrings. I lean forward slowly and lift them out. Then I drop the ruined toast into the bin. I feel elated, confused and ashamed. I was wrong. It's good to be wrong. Now, to have been wrong about Tony. He might make it over the finish line after all. I'll call him later, maybe tomorrow, and tell him I've found him. I do silly things sometimes, but I'm not paying attention. The burnt toast, the earrings in the rubbish bin, these things happen. Getting old, he has to understand that. He can let off steam, 
But in the end, he has to understand that when I've apologized enough. But now, though, I need to go out and buy some more bread. Got my pension now. Tony collected it for me on Monday. It's on the calendar. Graham would be laughing at me. Not nasty. Just at my silliness. I make my way to the bureau in the living room and look on the money shelf. The envelope isn't there. The envelope with the pension money in it. I take a breath. It's still not there. I take another breath and then start to write out a list of all the places it could be. Blessed Are the Geek by Liam Hogan. And we read by Clive Greenwood. Liam Hogan, it says here, is aiming for an anthology of anthologies. Having recently had stories accepted for The Martian Wave, Zombified 2, Steampunk Trails, and previously for O Little Town of Deathland, Across the Ages, and Arachne published London Lies. This is, of course, a shameless attack to fill his bookshelves without actually writing the best-selling novel he's supposed to be writing. Clive is currently touring in Up Pompeii, playing Frankie Harrow's role of Lurkio, and appears in two upcoming features, Mob Handed and Alice on Mars. He co-wrote Goodbye, The Afterlife of Cook and Law, which ran at the Gilded Balloon and Leicester Square Theatres and will be seen at the new Museum of Comedy in January 2015. <laughs> Blessed Are the Geek by Liam Hogan. Dear Luke, I am your father. <laughs> that is, assuming your mother didn't lie. And I can't see any reason why she should. It wasn't like she was asking anything of me. Quite the reverse. Oh, and assuming your mother bothered to pay any heed at all to this one little request of mine. Well, two, if you count the letter. Because, just like Jorel left a recorded message in the Fortress of Solitude for the infant man of steel, I leave this letter to you, my son, to be opened on the occasion of your 18th birthday. Before you go jumping off any buildings or screwing up your eyes in a vain attempt to x-ray your way through the nearest girl's clothing, I have, alas, no superpowers to impart, only wisdom. All that I have all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this 
and more. I bequeath to you my son. That's the Brando Jorel version, of course. <laughs> and uh, like most of my advice, it's borrowed. And this isn't a sign of weakness. It's the sign of a true fan, a devotee. But even if my advice isn't strictly mine to give, it is all that I have to offer you, other than your name. Again, assuming that your mother hasn't ruined my intro and called you something else. I'm optimistic, though. I half convinced her that Luke was a good, honest name, a biblical name. And I think I managed to do it without mentioning Skywalker or Darth Vader once. But if she suspects, then I'm guessing you're probably a Clark, a John, or heaven forbid, a Robin. She probably thinks these are nice names. But they are merely sidekicks and alter egos. The Dr. Watson to the great detective. These are lowly aspirations for any child to be saddled with from birth. Alternative names, I hasten to add, for which I take no responsibility. So do feel free to blame your mother. Of course, she could have done far worse than to give you an inauspicious moniker. She could have destroyed this one message of mine, or failed to deliver it to you, or even delivered it too early, despite the very strict instructions I have written on the envelope to be opened on my son's 18th birthday, or during the singularity, or in the event of an alien, robot, zombie, or stormtrooper invasion, <laughs> whichever comes first. After all, 18 years is a long time. Things change. Superheroes are reborn with fresh faces. Their stories rebooted. God knows what generation doctor we're up to by now. When I was growing up, there was only one Superman. Hulk was an actor in green body paint. Batman was played for laughs. Spider-Man was a cartoon. And Iron Man a comic. But perhaps this suggests that any advice I might give will be past its best before date. But perhaps in the intervening years, they'll find out, as in Woody Allen's sleeper, that cigarettes are good for you, or that sunscreen gives you cancer. But I have, I hope, chosen wisely. My advice is timeless, because it is the advice of heroes. <coughs> Perhaps, for that very reason, it will already be familiar to you. I do hope so, whoever's lips it may have emerged from. But allow me, please, to put my own spin on it, to try to distill what I feel has been the most useful to me over the years, and why. Never try and rewrite your history. It won't wash. You'll just end up with a phantom menace. In an ideal world, you won't even know what I'm talking about. As I sincerely hope, history has been as unkind to that pile of dross as we fans were when we first saw it. So, yep, like even the great George Lucas, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have regrets. I did. 
I have. These, as much as your successes, are what make you, you. That doesn't mean you have to announce them to the world. But please don't ignore them. Don't try to brush them under the carpet. Most likely they won't fit. Talking about mistakes, never drink more than two pangalactic gargle blasters <laughs> in one session. Seriously. You have, if fate has been as kind to you as it has been to me, a brain the size of a plat. And while on occasion your wish it was not so, drink is not the answer. There are few things less attractive than a vomit-splattered geek. And alas, this too I know from bitter experience. Never wear a cape. This shouldn't be advice I have to give. If this is in any way news to you, go back and watch every Pixar movie ever. They'll teach you far more than I ever could. Make sure you have a speaking part. We all know what happens to the crewmate in the red jumper who accompanies Spock and Kirk to the planet's surface. Don't be that silent nobody. If you see a girl that you like, go over and... Heck, talk to her! The worst she can do is ignore you. Or perhaps use you for sex. And, other than the need to hastily pen a detailed letter for a potentiality 18 years down the line before being shown the door, that really isn't so bad. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> okay, I don't mean that quite literally. I guess I mean never get involved in any wars at all. Unless it's on a computer screen. Or it involves cards. Or odd-shaped dice. Geeks are not made for fights. We lack the coordination, the aggression, the willingness to hurt and be hurt. Being clever... You'll ruffle the feathers of the jocks, the gym-goers. You might, for a brief and regrettable moment, assume that sheer brain power is enough to beat them. And like Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock, it isn't. Slow-mo is strictly for the movies. Finally, Luke, dear son, I have to face the very real possibility that things have not panned out quite the way I'm imagining. And I'm not just talking about asteroids, global warming, or World War III, or even Z. No. When your mother and I parted ways, you were merely the faintest of lines on a pregnancy test kit. She wanted a kid, she said. Wanted it to be clever, she said. But she didn't want a husband, a father, a geek. Be careful what you ask for, I say. There's a good chance that you are now the geek she didn't want. Did that come out right? Oh, never mind, there's no time to edit. There is also the possibility that, Luke, I am not your father. That it is not my DNA that flows through your veins that makes up your veins, or, or half makes up. This is not a consideration I take lightly. 
And it isn't, in this case, even one that reflects badly on your mother. After all, her clock was ticking, and she wanted a kid. And I'm assuming I wasn't the only non-pathological nerd that she found sitting at the bar, avoiding eye contact at one of the many drinking establishments near Silicon Roundabout. But I hope and trust you are a geek. I hope you are intelligent, passionate, slightly obsessed, and more than a little introverted. That would be enough, I think. It would be evidence that you are the fruit of my Tasmanian devil underpanted loins. <laughs> if not, if it turns out that you are sporty, relaxed around women, the sort you think collectibles are for kids, and the chances are you are not my son at all. So, so be it. Maybe you'll still get something out of my advice, though I'm not sure what. The bit about the cape, perhaps. <laughs> there is, of course, another possibility. You could have half of my DNA, but not the half that includes the Y chromosome. In which case, I'm afraid I have no real advice to offer. <laughs> I can only apologise. I'm sorry that you'll be cursed to wear glasses for most of your life. I'm sorry that you'll have to hide your intelligence in an attempt to be popular. I'm sorry that you'll be considered socially awkward, quirky, or worse, kooky. But most of all, I'm really, really, really sorry, Luke. It's not the best name for a girl, <laughs> is it? May the force be with you. Love, Dad. <laughs> it's Innocence by Chris Tucker, to be read by Alex Woodhall. Chris grew up in Cumbria before leaving for London to study sociology and politics at Goldsmiths University. Within the year after graduating, he took up writing for the first time, currently about to make a break for it in Manchester working in marketing and policy. Alex has worked in comedy for the last 14 years on stage, TV and radio. He DJs extensively around the country in clubs, festivals and catamarans, <coughs> and is half of the Coffin Dodgers disco, which happens here. Uh, interests include ballroom dancing, Native American art and internet trolling. <laughs> Let me just find your start, Alex. Innocence by Chris Tucker. I used to think that cows ate pigs. Until I was five, I grew up on a farm. Herds of cows would stand and stare whilst I stood and stared back. What I noticed was that the pigs would try to escape. Their pot bellies would start to show through with their four little pink legs dangling down. My dad employed workers to help on the farm. Look, I showed one of them, pigs everywhere, half trapped. Why do the cows always stare? He knelt down 
and whispered in my ear, Well, what do you think they plan on eating next? <laughs> I ran back to the house. I could hear his laugh as I sprinted along the pebble-dashed paving stones and through the gate. I opened the front door, ran through the dining room and into the kitchen. My mum turned to face me as I burst through. My dad sat in the armchair, lowered the top of his newspaper and peered over. Joseph! She looked startled at my entrance. What's wrong? I stumbled over and hugged her legs, burying my face in the front of her apron. She placed her hand on top of my head and brushed my hair back. What's wrong, Joseph? She asked again. I slowly lifted my eyes till I could see her looking down and her hand moved to my shoulder. With a mouthful of apron, I muttered, It's the cows. <laughs> At this point, my dad put down his newspaper. What about the cows? He boomed. Is Martin not doing his job again? I turned around. My mum kept her hand on my shoulder. He told me why they stare. Why what stare? He told me why the cows always stare. My dad said nothing. I looked at my feet. Kneeling down, my mum asked softly, Why do you think they stare, Joseph? I gave her a worried look, my bottom lip trembling. Because they want to eat me. <laughs> and I fell into her arms. There was a silence. I lay there, arms wrapped around my mum's neck. I questioned at the time whether they already knew. Is that why my dad kept the cows locked in the field? I started to feel my mum shudder, and then I heard a snort behind me. Looking back, I saw my dad bent over in a fit of silent, hysterical laughter. I blinked, puzzled. I looked at my mum. She instantly pursed her mouth shut. Not funny, I whimpered. And then my dad lost it. The kitchen echoed with the sound of his laughter, filling every crevice. It's not funny, I screamed. Honey, my mum cooed, bringing me closer to her chest. Oh, honey, she repeated, stroking me air. They're not going to eat you. Martin was, Martin was playing a little trick on you, that's all. Cows don't eat people. But why do they stare and why do they eat pigs? My dad looked at me incredulously. Son, he said, cows eat grass. Cows eat grass and we eat cows. Nothing eats us. <laughs> I turned around slowly, facing my dad again. We eat cows? Yes, we eat cows. <laughs> but the cows that live in the field? Yes, the cows live in the field. Then we eat the cows? Yes. But, why? <laughs> he looked at me, his brow buried deep. What do you think I do? He asked me. I, you, you look after the cows. I started to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> John, maybe we shouldn't now. My mum started to say, no, Sarah. Go on, son. What do you think I do? I looked to my mum and I looked to my dad. You take care of the cows? 
He sighed. He folded his paper in half and placed it on the Welsh dresser on the left. Getting up from the armchair, he came towards me. The smell of manure grew stronger as he got closer. He knelt down and his face was in front of mine. I take care of the cows. I take care of the cows. And when they're old enough, I take them to a slaughterhouse. At the slaughterhouse, the cows are killed. Mum puts them in the arger and you get your Sunday dinner. <laughs> I didn't say anything. Do you understand? John! He got up and walked towards the kitchen door. Picking up his flat cap resting on the arm of his chair, he secured it on his head. Just as well today is Sunday. And then he left. Neither my mum nor I said a word. She held me, and I started to feel a shudder. I knew this time it wasn't from laughter. Well, she exclaimed. Well, she said again, gathering herself together. I think you must be tired after all that running around outside. I smiled. Will you read me a story? A story? She asked warmly, um, picking me up and slowly walking towards the door. She made her way through the hallway and up the stairs. I always remember the way she smelled at them that moment. A mixture of musty clothes, Vaseline moisturiser and a faint hint of perfume. Yes, please, I said. She put me down and we got, as we got to my room and she let me run to my books. Just a short one. I stood in front of my bookshelf, looking at all the pictures and bright colours that looked back at me. This one, I exclaimed, running over. She took it from my hand and smiled. Should have known. I climbed into bed. Are you ready? Ready. Then I'll begin. There was an old woman who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. There was an old woman who swallowed a spider that wriggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. I lay there, letting the words wash over me, knowing each time which animal came next. Bird, cat, dog, goat, cow. There was an old woman who swallowed a horse. I looked to my mum. She's dead! Of course! <laughs> I finished for her. My mum looked at me as I lay in bed. You know I love you, she said. I love you too. Your father. Your father loves you too. I didn't say anything. <laughs> she got up to tuck me in. Just a little nap before dinner, she whispered, kissing me forehead. She was about to leave but said one final thing before she did. Whenever you feel scared, Joseph, whenever you feel uncomfortable, I want you to remember the last happy thing you can. Okay? Okay, I said. And then she shut the door. That Sunday evening, we all gathered round the dinner table. Dad stood at the foot of the table and my mum and I sat opposite each other. A huge fillet of beef rested in front of him. And so here we are, he said, here for our family meal this Sunday. 
My mum and I sat there and didn't say anything. I looked at the beef, this huge brown lump of meat. I'd never liked beef. I used to sit for hours chewing on the same mouthful. My dad had once caught me taking it out of my mouth and putting it back on the plate. He'd made me sit there till every piece of food had gone. He slowly began carving. My father used to do this exact same thing. Every Sunday, we would sit down and appreciate our food that we had in front of us. The food that my mother had cooked for us. The food that my father, on his farm, had bred, reared and slaughtered. Pass the plate, son. I handed it over. And I see no reason why we should change that tradition. Sarah? She handed over her plate and he presented another slice. For generations we have raised cow cows. It runs deep in our blood. In your blood, Joseph. I clenched my mouth shut. Cows are here for a purpose. A purpose that has been established long before any of us can remember. They are animals. A tool. Food. He sat down and picked up his knife and fork. Let us begin. My mum glanced at me anxiously. I sat there and stared. What part of the cow is this from? <laughs> a head? A leg? His stomach? His back? My dad was carefully cutting his meat, smearing the potato on top before placing it in his mouth. I watched his fat neck move as the food slid down. And one day, one day, you will do the same as me, Joseph. The same thing my father did and his father and his father's father. One day, I looked up from a plate and met his gaze. What I said still shocks me. I don't want to. He stopped. My mum looked at me. My dad glared. What did you say? He said quietly. I didn't reply. Joan, I think it's time, his voice was rising, I think it's time you came with me. When the cows are ready, to see, see where they go. See what gets served up on your plate. See how you're fed. John, don't talk to him like that. My dad shot eyes to her. I felt his snarl. He's so ungrateful. He doesn't have to, my mum was screaming. He doesn't have to become a farmer. He doesn't have to help with the farm. He doesn't have to slaughter the cows. He doesn't have to eat the bloody beef. Yes, he does. He's five years old. Five! He will do as he is told. He will eat what's given. Yes! He's five. I never got the choice, and you know why? Because I didn't know what was best for me at that age. I didn't, and neither does he. I sat there. The shouting grew louder. Had it always been there? I felt as though I was sinking underwater. The voices got blurred the further I got. What was I doing? Was I singing? There was an old woman who swallowed a fly. That is why, Sarah, that is why he will come with me. I don't know why he swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. I won't let you, John. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. He has to learn. It's food. He has to learn. Bird, cat, dog, goat, cow. There was an old lady who swallowed a horse. Tomorrow, I'm going to take him tomorrow so he can learn this. He brandished his fork with the beef. Is this? He put the fork in his mouth and swallowed. She's dead, of course! I screamed. Joseph? 
I looked at my dad. My mum looked too. John? His face went pale. John? He clutched his hands round his neck and spluttered. John? His face looked round, enlarged, a bright red now. He emitted a sickly cry. John! I sat and watched my mum run. He placed his hands on the table, cheeks purple, retching. John, get up! He stood. His plate went flying. Food went everywhere. Gravy dripped off the table. Breathe, John, breathe! He stepped back, but the chair was behind him. It fell. He fell. The side table was there. His legs gave way. His head came down. A loud smack. He lay there, legs over the chair, head on the floor. Eyes open. There was a silence. A small pool of blood filled the stone flooring round me dad's head. It formed a perfect circle. A halo. My mum started screaming, but I couldn't hear. I jumped off my chair and ran through the dining room. I opened the front door. I went through the gate, along the paving stones, and then I stopped. I stopped outside the field and I looked at the cows. I looked at the cows and they looked at me. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars will be back here at Phoenix on the glorious 12th of August with Beauty and Beast. Leave your shotguns at home. The next submission deadline is the 3rd of August for September's High and Low. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and those Not Safe for Kids videos, and recordings from previous events are on the Liars website. And so, <clears throat> the fifth born story, the cunning and devious runt of the litter, yes, yes David, I did say runt, I <laughs> will be A Day for the Ducks by David McGrath, and we read by Gloria Sanders. David has won the Korean Press Short Story Competition, Story Slam at the Royal Festival Hall, and was highly commended in the Manchester Fiction Prize in 2013. He's been published in Litro, Open Pen, Words with Jam Neuropology, and Earthless Melting Pot, and The League's Weird Lies Anthology. Gloria trained at Drama Studio London. She also performed The Clock, a devised one-woman show at the Brighton Fringe. She's a narrator for the RNIB, and her poetry has been featured in Ink Zine and Annex Magazine. She's chuffed to be lying for you on behalf of the leak. Gloria! A Day for the Ducks by David McGrath. They woke in each other's arms to begin the Sunday, naked, estranged, a pair of ducks waking from dreams in which they were swans. He grabbed his underpants from the floor and struggled them on as he ran for the ensuite fast. She sprang up in search of clothes, 
stopping all of a sudden to outstretch her palms to God, asking him to ease up on the hangover for ten fucking seconds. <clears throat> she put on a pair of sweatpants and a cardigan, hid her strapless bra and thong, draped her dress over the chair and then looked at her new shoes, found them destroyed with puddle dirt and the hangover pressing like a dirty little rotten cock-sucking bitch. She sat down on the edge of the bed to collect herself and looking into the dresser mirror, someone stared back. Someone who was more on in years than she remembered. Someone who was old. He had stopped breathing and was making a low choking moan over the toilet bowl that ended in a dry retch until up came the Sambuca, the viscous whiskey, the dark rum soup, the, the lager and the alcohol pops with the fizz still in them. <laughs> he looked at himself in the mirror. Someone stared back. Someone more on in years than he remembered. Someone who was fucking old. When he finally opened the bathroom door, there was a half-naked little girl standing in front of him with a disgusted expression on her face. <clears throat> she had chubby cheeks and shiny ringlets, Goldilocks in her underwear. Were you getting sick, were you? She asked. I, I was, yeah, uh, I was. Must have been bad food. Me bollocks, the little girl said. Vanessa, watch your language or you'll get a slap, said her mother, still sitting on the bed, not quite sure what to do or what to say or how to act. But the smell of beer off him, said Vanessa, then lost interest in the conversation and attempted to balance on her tippy toes. She tumbled and used his arm as a support. Wow, he said, feeling dirty and perverse in his Giorgio Armani underpants. A little girl holding him. It's called on point. Bally, it's hard as fuck. <laughs> Vanessa, I'm warning you, she said, head in her hands and looking down at the carpet. Vanessa began showing him demi plies. He put both his hands over his groin, then slid one down to cover his hairy thighs. He brushed past Vanessa to sit on the bed and pull a sheet over his waist. <sighs> Come on, Vanessa, let she said and stalled. <laughs> the man, get dressed. <laughs> Me dress is in your wardrobe, Vanessa said. Jesus, what, what time is it? She asked. This was serious. The game had changed. She looked at the alarm clock on the locker, then leaned in to make sure it really said the time it said. Jesus fucking Christ, it's half ten, where's your granny? She went to hers to get ready. We thought you were up. Ah, Jesus. Get ready now, Vanessa, or we'll be late, she said, grabbing an outfit in dry cleaner's plastic from her wardrobe. She stood in the bathroom door a split second, took a look towards the toilet to make sure it was safe, then shut the door. The electric shower powered on. So, are you my daddy now? <laughs> Daddy, uh, oh, there, um, <clears throat> see, like, relax, 
Soy Moulin Mason, ¿qué chat? ¿Do you swim? Uh, swim. I do, yeah. Yeah, not very well though. I have to use armbands. Paula Dunn doesn't. She can swim without armbands, and she won't shut up about it. <laughs> Vanessa said, outstretching her arms over her head in two wide arcs, attempting a demi-plie, then a, a, a pirouette. Want to see me dress? It's gorgeous. Vanessa walked over to the wardrobe, opened the bottom drawer, and used it as a step up. She unhooked a white fluffy ball and threw it onto the bed, then tried a grand jeté down off the drawer, landing badly. Oh, mind yourself, he said. I'm grand, relax, Vanessa said, picking herself up off the ground. You've gotten married, he said, nodding at the big, white, fluffy dress. It's me first Holy Communion today. I have to eat Jesus and all that. <laughs> he put his head in his hands and pressed all ten fingers into it hard. You look like trampet shite. Don't get sick on my dress or I burst ya. Vanessa got his dress, got the dress out of his vomiting radius and laid it on the ground. A chiffon satin and lace embroidered ball of white floral pattern that materialised in his broken head like some sort of hole in the universe. She stepped inside it, left foot first, then right and pulled it up around her, vanishing inside, except for her head. Do me zip up with ya! She walked, lumbered over to him, presenting him with her back. Oh, well, well do, you, do you want to wait for your mammy to do that? Ow, just stop and go on! He took the zip and pulled it up quickly, catching the material in the room. Careful! He took it again and poked out the material from the room, proceeding to pull it up gently, looking away as he did so, ready to leap up and declare his innocence should authorities burst through the door. <laughs> I've a tiara as well, it's gorgeous. Me dad has it outside the door. Bring in the tiara, dad! Vanessa shouted out to the hallway. The films were all wrong. Life did not flash before your eyes in the final moments. Death did. <laughs> and it was a violent one where no one could hear you scream at the hands of Dad and all of his North Dublin cronies armed with wrenches and voices and blowtorches and when he begged them just to finish him off they all laughed and singed his eyeballs with cigarettes. <laughs> Relax! said Vanessa. I'm only messing with you. Where are you from? The country? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm from me. Oh. Do you have any brothers and sisters? I'm a sister. I have two half-brothers. They're a pair of little cunts. She affixed her bag over her shoulder and took beaded white gloves out of it. The shower switched off. She never takes showers when she's on her own in the house. Isn't that weird? What do you think of veils? Veils? The ones over your face, you muppet. The ones that you wear for weddings and maybe holy communions. Veils, white veils, said Vanessa, attempting another demi-plié in the dress. What 
do you think of him? Hate him, she said, and palmed down her bodice, reaching her head back as far as she could manage, so as to make sure everything was in order. Rotten things they are. It's a communion. What do you need a veil for? Does Paula Dunn have a veil? She won't shut up about it. <laughs> Tiara's of the way forward, I think. He said, in my opinion, to hell with veils. <laughs> Vanessa took her eyes off him for a split second and pulled up his trousers underneath the sheet. She heard the movement and turned back round, staring unashamedly, trying to catch one last glimpse of his zigzagged underpants. He pulled out the bit of sheet that had been tucked inside his trousers with the manoeuvre. He stood up and swayed a path from the blood rush to the head. He found his t-shirt and put it on his shoes and put them on. The socks were abandoned. What's your job? I'm Sparky. I wire houses and factories for electricity and make sure it all has power and lights and that sort of thing. Yeah, electrician. You make much dash? Not these days. Works a bit scarce, actually. He said and waited for her to ask another question. But she did not. Instead, she tucked her bottom lip beneath the top one, folded her arms at the same time. Her heel, the only part of the right foot that touched the carpet. Right. Right communion, he said, and reached for his wallet in his back pocket. He found a twenty and a fiver, with the last bit of money he had until Thursday's dole. He pinched the fiver inside his wallet and looked at her, looking at the notes. He took out the 20 and gave it to her. <laughs> Cheers, she said, slipping it inside her bag. What about the five? You want the five too. What do you need it for? He handed the five over too. She slipped it inside her bag with the 20. Do you want the wallet and all? He said. No, I've a purse. <laughs> the bathroom door opened and she came out dressed in a coral pantsuit and white blouse, her hair cleaned, her face scrubbed, teeth brushed and rinsed twice with mouthwash. She looked rejuvenated and put a spring in her step to show it, to show she was rushed, that he had to skedaddle. She plugged in the hairdryer and began shaking it, running it through wet strands of hair. Vanessa, are you ready? I have to put my shoes and socks on. Well, go do it, will you? Or we'll be late. Vanessa went to her room. He stood up, shifted weight from one foot to the other. She looked at him in the reflection of the dresser's mirror and shook the hair dryer harder through her hair. I'll get off. Oh, get out of your way, he said. Okay, she said. Any of the buses at the end of the road take you into town? Brilliant! Ah, good luck with it. What? She said, over the noise of the dryer. She switched it off and turned round to look at him, making sure not to smile, but not to frown either. Neutral, keeping it neutral. Oh, I just said, um, Good luck with the communion. She's 
She's a nice kid. She's funny. Thanks if I could just stop her swearing. Ah, it's a phase with them, isn't it? He said. He was doing well, like. Mature. <laughs> She's just doing it to get noticed. Well, I think you have the next big ballerina on your hands there. I'll be watching out for her. <laughs> right, yeah, she said, turning back round. No, it's just that I'm off to Canada soon. Toronto. I remember you saying, she said. No, I, uh, I meant, he said and stopped. She watched him raise his hand behind his ear like he was about to ask a question in school, but not quite sure whether it was a stupid one or not. He took a step to her, outstretched a hand, made to say something, and then decided against it. Boy, he said, finally, his eyes opened hard, suggesting that maybe she could say something instead. Bye now, she said, switching on the hair dryer and getting to work on the strands still wet. He turned, she got on the drying. He hurried down the stairs and opened the front door then closed it behind him. The rain had started and the puddles collected. Drops dripped from the locked bicycles and that was it really. A day for the ducks. The houses snoozed on, curtains still drawn. The cars stayed parked, nobody to work, nobody for a job, nobody venturing out for fresh orange juice or, or breakfast rolls, nobody even able to look at food. A time fit only for paracetamol and maybe a hammer over the head to knock you out until Monday. He looked up at the bedroom window. It'll be fine, Vanessa said through the letterbox. Thanks, he said. If you want a loan of some money. <laughs> no, he said. I'll be all right. Thank you, Gloria. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes this evening's entertainment. You are now free to go home to your families, or other people's families, if you prefer. Uh, though we'd be delighted if you stuck around a little longer and let our authors and actors know exactly how proud of them you all are. Good night. <laughs>